For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Today's guest is former Mumford & Sons lead guitarist Winston Marshall. Before I chat to Winston, sign no more because I've got a fantastic deal for you from The Spectator Australia. The winter winds are coming, which is a great excuse to stay inside the cave and read the specky. At $16.99 a month, with one month free when you sign up, you'll be doing a dust bowl dance with glee. I will wait, but not for too long, so sign up now at spectator.com.au forward slash join. G'day and welcome to Australiana from The Spectator Australia, a series of conversations on Australian politics and life. I'm Will Kingston. Like me, today's guest hosts a Spectator podcast. Unlike me, he's won a Grammy, scored several worldwide number one albums and has played in front of millions of adoring fans from Madison Square Garden to Glastonbury. Winston Marshall was the banjoist and lead guitarist for British folk rock band Mumford & Sons. In 2021, he left the band so that he could be free to use his voice to shine a light on the taboo topics of our age, a calling he has taken to with gusto. Winston Marshall, welcome to Australiana. Well, thank you for having me and for that flattering introduction, although I should, I should correct one little thing is that, um, so when I did, it was two years ago that I quit Mumford & Sons and it was actually more, uh, uh, rather, rather than quitting so that I could speak on the taboo topics it was rather a, a position where I could have stayed in the band and had a microphone and not being able to, uh, a metaphorical as well as literal microphone and not be, not be able to talk on difficult topics or give up the microphone and speak my mind freely. And the irony has been that in, in so leaving, and it's taken about two years for me to, well, it took me a while anyway to realize this, but now I, I oddly have a a bigger voice than I had anticipated with, with as you say, a, a, a spectator podcast just like you. And um, it's, I guess, one of the ironies. I don't know if it's an irony or... or but uh, yes, uh, thank you for that flattering introduction and thank you for having me on your show. Let's start there because your story is well known in the UK. It's perhaps not as well known in Australia. Maybe the first story is about how four young blokes from West London join up and become the biggest band in the world. We know that story. The next story about how you actually leave the band is less well known. Tell us that story. So, um, as I said, it was a couple of years now and, um, I guess it was, it was, it was pandemic. So it feels like, I don't know if you, if your listeners will go back to a, a period of, of international worldwide insanity, I think. <laughs> and the further we get away from that period, I think the, the more clearly it seems that we behaved, whatever your opinions are on the on the the minor politics of it all, and wherever you land on the on the various issues, certainly you'll agree that in the stress of it all, whether you agreed with things or disagreed with things, everyone was hyper stressed. And twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one seemed like two particular years of of insanity. Anyway, in amongst that uh, period, I I um. 
the band had stopped touring, as you said, I was in Van Mumford and Sons, and we did our last show in Florida in uh, Mar- I think the very beginning of March 2020. And we'd had a couple of more shows, but then obviously uh, postponed, eventually cancelled those shows, and the lockdowns descended upon us. And amongst other things, uh, in that period, I, I, um, I, took, some, I, I took some sort of rest. I, I'd spent my entire adult life touring. And in the studio, uh, which I loved, but um, it came at a, it came at a much needed time to to kind of decompress, I think. And um, and I was posting on my not very many to to my not very many followers on social media about, amongst the other things, the books I was reading. One of the books I tweeted about was by the American conservative author Andy No, who had a, a uh, published a book at the beginning of 2021 titled "Unmasked: Documenting." far-left extremism in the United States specifically, uh, not just the Antifa and uh, uh, movement in places like Portland, Oregon and Seattle, Washington, but also uh, the BLM riots in which 19 people were killed in the first 14 days following the killing of George Floyd and uh, documenting the Chaz uh, zone in Seattle, all these various things. Anyway, somehow it just exploded on Twitter. And I mean, I I quite literally had 3,000 followers. And yet it just somehow over the course of one or two days, me, me tweeting about this book, it went up all the trending lists. By the end of the weekend, it was a segment on all the biggest TV shows. And the band were getting tremendous hellfire. So, And if I may interrupt there, because this is important for listeners, I revisited that tweet and the thing that strikes you is how much of a nothing tweet it is. It's along the lines of congratulations on a, on a book on an important topic. It was not at face value a controversial comment whatsoever. Quite. And, uh, but I think then maybe to understand, and it might take me a lifetime to, to fully process and, and understand, and I can't, I can't, tell you that I'm fully recovered from the whole thing. And, and that might sound uh, like I'm being uh, dramatic or oversensitive, although my life has completely changed as a consequence of that. And, and the whole, my whole um, concept of my own future has changed, because, changed, you know, I, I was an ambitious musician and, and I still am a musician and still have ambitions within music, music but uh, uh, life is different now. <laughs> Let's put it that way. And... Um, Trying to understand why this tweet blew up, uh, in in many ways I see it as an act of God, but I also think that if you take it within the music industry, because it was really a dog pile in the music industry, uh, on me, firstly, BLM was a sacred cow. You could not criticise the BLM riots. If you remember, it was, uh, I think, uh, I forget when in June exactly, but there was the Black Square moment, um, Blackout Tuesday, where everyone put up a black square in uh, support of the Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. organization and movement. I think those are two different things, uh, but that's another topic. But also at the time of the BLM riots, the very damaging riots, uh, damaging, uh, I'll note, particularly to uh, many black businesses, paradoxically, was that many people in the creative industries were putting, posting uh, raising money f- to post bail for the various Antifa and rioters who had been arrested in that in that period. So the, the creative industries, and the creative industries are very small industries, not many people in them, 
uh, so everyone sort of knows each other. They, they were fully and un unquestioningly supporting this movement. And so this book challenged some of those narratives. And, and I think that's part of the reason you, you, you cannot challenge it. And, and, and I think now that there's been a bit of time and, and voices criticizing the, the, the obvious um, flaws in not only the movement, but also the BLM organization, for example, they raised 90 million dollars in that period, of which something like 25 million went on Wall Street. They Each of the founding and leading members of the organization, including people like Patrice Khan Colors, have acquired a pretty impressive uh, property portfolio. And a ton of the money has gone on to trans charities, as if that's got anything to do with the plight of African-Americans in America. So there's so many obvious flaws and, and now it's been time and, and, and enough people have debated the topic. It seems like, oh, of course you can criticize that. But actually at the time you really could not criticize the shortcomings of, of the movement and, the, and, the, and those charities. And there are a bunch of topics like this. I've mentioned trans there. The, trans is another issue that seems to be retaining its, its uh, controversy. And, and it's, it's almost every week or every month that someone loses it all for defending women's rights and women's spaces and and um uh, and you know standing up against the transitioning of children and 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 what i consider the mutilation and the corruption of of children and it's just another topic and there are a few of these of these topics i guess there always will be these topics as long as 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 long as humans are, are still are still around it's our nature i have a couple of those topics including the trans topic on my list to get through with you just before okay we... well let's do it before we do, before we leave this this saga, I am interested in the human dimension of it all because no one who's listening to this, I imagine, would would have experienced being in the centre of a cancellation storm like that. I'm just fascinated as to what it feels like. Uh, it's, you know, I, I, on a personal level, I, I don't really care what, like, strangers or whatever. It's like the, the, the difficult thing about it, or rather the most difficult thing about it was firstly what happens on a personal level with people that you know, love and, and, and work with. And, and I don't really care what some stranger in, in far off, you know, Twitter sphere thinks of me. I couldn't care less. But, but when it's your friends, and, and that's where it becomes, becomes very difficult. It's like, it, it starts off, okay, there's some attention on Twitter. But then it's like, you get the phone calls, you get the text messages, and people are very upset. And people saying like, oh, you know, well, how could you do this? What's going on? It's like, well, hang on a sec. What, what's going on here? And, and and that's what's difficult. And then your life's sort of crumbling at, at, at that moment. And um, another difficult thing was that, you know, I was in a band and they were coming after my bandmates. Mm. And that was, unf I, I, I had perhaps, I mean, it's certainly with retrospect, it seems like an obvious thing. I shouldn't have done that tweet, although, uh, you know. I'm, I'm not in, sure it is obvious, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, anything's obvious. Well, with with retro, you know, in hindsight, but um, but they were coming after my band as well. So if I had been a lone actor, I think things would have gone very different. If I was a solo artist, obviously I would. So just for listeners who don't know the story, I then issued an apology for uh, endorsing the book, and and then uh, over the coming next two or three months, the I really dug into the issue to see you know what's going on here, and I felt more. Um, sure that I had been correct, that the author was indeed brave. In fact, he was attacked and he'd been attacked beforehand and, and suffered a brain hemorrhage, but he was attacked in that period. Again, the video footage of which came out online and uh, it was in a 
in a hotel in, in Portland. And I just felt like I'm part of the problem here. Uh, I'm, I'm effectively endorsing these, these Antifa hooligans. And so it, it just didn't play with my, I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't eating properly. It, it just, it was, and, and then as an artist, the artist's duty, artist's role is, to, is the pursuit of, of truth. And, and the, the apology I'd issue hung around my neck like a tablet of shame. So, so I, uh, I came to a point where I, 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 it was the only way forward was for me to leave the band. And so I issued, uh, or I explained the situation to the band. There was no real objection. And I issued an uh, apology, uh, sorry, I retracted my apology rather, and issued an explanation letter uh, and and quit the band and um, and actually I was immediately liberated but my conscience was liberated by that so uh, certainly not no regrets there but um, it was just weird weird as hell position to get into <laughs> a weird experience generally um, but you know can I take you back to that essay that you wrote announcing your departure from the band because I think it's very mm-hmm. poignant you quoted well you you actually had a wonderful conversation with Ignat Solzhenitsyn the son of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. It was your very first podcast interview. You quoted Alexander in that essay. And if you'll indulge me, uh, the quote goes, and he who is not sufficiently courageous to defend his soul, don't let him be proud of his progressive views. And don't let him boast that he is an academician or a people's artist, a distinguished figure or a general. Let him say to himself, I am a part of the herd and a coward. It's all the same to me as long as I'm fed and kept warm. You said in that essay that that quote profoundly stirs you. Why? Well, Alexander published the that that's from an essay called "Live Not by Lies," which he published in 1974 upon his his expulsion from from Moscow, and and then and then he <clears throat> went into exile eventually in the United States. And um, I know it again seems a bit dramatic to in any way compare my life to him. I'm not, uh, but uh, uh, that essay in that period. I must have read that about five times over the course of three months, and it really affected me. It's, it's, uh, it, I, you know, perhaps in ways I, I don't fully understand, but it resonated in a way that, yeah, how, how, how dare I, you know, I, I call myself a musician and a, you know, a songwriter, and whether I, whether it's music or whether I want to write prose or whatever I do, if I've got this apology, which is essentially participating in the lie, then I'm, I'm just as bad as the lie. So it really, that really bothered me. And I think it was the best articulation of the, of the, pro, of, of my feeling there of the, that I'd done in apologizing, I'd done wrong. Although at the same time, you know, let, I'll give this example as well. If you're at a dinner table and you say something that someone's offended by, you're not going to double down and go like, yeah, you're going to go, Oh, I'm sorry. Have I offended you? Why have I offended you? What, what, uh, you know, explain to me what I don't understand, and that, and and that's analogous to I think what I was going through is like. Well, first I wanted to protect the band, but also like maybe I don't understand this whole issue about Antifa and 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 BLM. What do I not understand? And so that's why I spent the time really digging into the issue. So anyway, yeah, that essay I, I recommend to your listeners, "Live Not by Lies" by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Uh, it's a it's a five page essay. It's pretty a pretty short one, but it's very very powerful. We'll include the link to the essay in the show notes. You mentioned that you're an artist. You continue to be a musician. It is one of the, if not the great passions of your your life. Let's go on to the, the arts. Do you think the arts can still be subversive in the way that they once were? Yes, I think they can. And there are examples of it. There's a fantastic interview with 
Nick Cave recently, who's who he's he's a he's a provocateur of of sorts. This was the unheard and, one, exactly. And mm. I was lucky enough to be in attendance. It was a live a live uh, recording, and 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 I recommend also, as given that this is an Australiana podcast, probably <laughs> most of your listeners have already read his recent book, Hope, Faith, and Carnage. Or I think that's I think that's the mm. title. It's, it's such a beautiful book. I think I was I was on the verge of tears for most of it, and 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 plunged over into tears a couple of times. Um, it's it's really breathtaking and um, a, a great articulation of suffering and, and faith. And but in this interview with Freddie Says, I heard he on on the one hand he sort of suggested that he's a and, and he, he's a little bit sort of uh, abstract at, at times. I think intentionally just to to keep because 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 when you're dealing with the issues of faith, it's hard to be too specific. Uh, I guess, but. Mm. Um, on the one hand, he suggested that he's more conservative now, uh, as uh, and and as a as a means of being pr- provocative. But on the other hand, I think that he he really he does resonate with those deep those deep um, those deeper not necessarily political conservatism, but traditions and 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 beliefs that that have have sustained us for so long. And um, and so I think he's in, in this current era amongst artists to be uh, what Nick Cave thinks to be a conservative is is to be a uh, how did you put it What was the uh, I think he basically said the, the the best way these days to put two fingers up at the establishment is to be a conservative is to be religious That is the ultimate countercultural position is to be conservative today Yeah, I mean it's it's funny because what is to be countercultural because you could make an argument perfectly legitimately that okay, let's say in my country in Britain, the Conservatives are not only in power, but they've been in power for something, something like thirteen years. And so, the, to be countercultural, you want to be in opposition to that. But then, if you live your life completely surrounded by countercultural stuff, how are you counter to the cultural counter? You counter the culture itself, and you become so. So, whichever way you land, you can sort of claim that you are the counterculture. Uh, you could probably rationalize your way in, in that mm. way. But he, he seems to me, in, and given that I'd still think that most of my friends are progressives and, and liberals, I've got a few conservative friends as well. But um, certainly in the creative industries, it does feel to me and uh, that someone like Nick Cave is the counterculture. And, and there are a few people like that, like... Um, What's the name of the Sex Pistols singer? John Lydon. Uh, he he's another example of of being oddly countercultural in his. You know, he's always he's always been countercultural, and then a couple of years ago he he gets photographed in a MAGA hat. You know, it's like he he's the he's a good uh, a good uh, test of what <laughs> what being counterculture, a good personification of counterculture. Well, these guys would probably um, say that that they haven't changed. The world around them has changed. I was fascinated listening to your conversation with Don McLean, and he made a really interesting point or a reflection on American Pie. He basically said, we are living through the day the music died. And he said he can see it in the way that people are cancelled, in the way that statues are pulled down, in the way that language is weaponised. He he called American Pie actually an anti-cancel culture anthem in today's day and age. How do you think that attitude would go down amongst the music industry today. Yeah, that's a that's a a, a good question, and and this is a very hard point to make because it's hard to get data on it. But I can't tell you how many private uh, messages, DMs I get, but also when I meet artists, 
so many are prepared to say like, all right, okay, I don't agree with you on everything, but I actually agree with you on this. And I, or, and, and this is a really common thing I hear is that I, I, you know, I, I need to, I can't say that, you know, I can't, you can't say that. So I keep my mouth shut. Uh, uh, and, and this is not just in Britain, it's time I spent in America. And, and now that I'm sort of out as a, someone, you know, who, who, who doesn't think exactly like uh, uh, everyone else, a, a lot of the people who, in, in that position of come to me because they feel, oh, finally, there's someone I can talk to. And for some people, it's very, um, I've had incidences where artists have broke down in tears. They're so frustrated that they can't speak amongst their, their peers uh, and they have to hide what they think, even though they have perfectly reasonable opinions. The, in fact, they're, they're, a lot of their positions are just traditional liberal positions, but they still feel that they can't, they, they talk. And, and, and what that does for an artist, by the way, Artists need to express themselves. They need an outlet. So many people probably think, oh, yeah, so what? Just keep your mouth shut, put your head down, get on with it. But an artist's whole career, whole whole work is to express themselves. So if they feel like they cannot express themselves, the psychological impact cannot be underestimated. It, it's it's really awful. And, and um, I'm sure it's I, – I, I suspect it's like that for most many people. Uh, but so – it, it, within the industry, I haven't quite because it's hard to like sort of get data and 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 I'm probably in a position where availability heuristic makes me believe that everyone's self censoring. But I also know that a lot of people mm. I know people who are very you very dogmatic in their in their woke beliefs. You cannot change, you know, you cannot talk certain topics without without you know basically starting a, a, an argument or a fight because there's a, they're almost like religious beliefs. So. Uh, within the industry there's a funny thing going on there's a lot of young, it's also generational i think this is another another thing is that there's um there's older generations let's say nick's uh, nick cave's generation you know he's i think he's about 6 years old and that you know they're a bit more sensible and, and adult about it and then there's a kind of the 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 young artists who are aged sort of 20 to 30 you know hyper progressive you know marinated in these deep progressive ideas i i've i've ex, i've tended to find them that far more ideologically possessed and 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 uh, stringent almost to a sort of puritanical religious extent and and it, 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 it's it, there's there's lots of vari- lots of variables i i don't know whether the music industry or the creative industries is going in the right direction i'm i'm yet to see it but as i said earlier in the interview it's a very small industry everyone sort of knows each other and completely prone to group think as all industries are and and um and, and i i do worry that the dominant artists who who shut down speech are going to do a lot of damage to the arts more generally and uh, arts can only thrive if artists feel like they can express themselves well that that's an interesting question can you actually draw a relationship between the quality of art the quality of music the quality of literature the quality of comedy and the rise of this cultural marxism in other words can you actually see whether this has had a a positive or i imagine in your view a negative impact on the quality of music that is produced I think that when it comes to music, there there has been. I think there has been some good music, and I, I, I do like some some modern music, particularly electronic music. I'm, I, I personally like that a lot. But the arts more broadly, what it's done for film, it's I would it seems like there hasn't been great film made for a while. But in in this period, I'll say, and and this is an attempt to be hopeful. Hemingway said of Dostoevsky, 
that that Dostoevsky was was made as a writer in when he was exiled in Siberia. A writer is forged in, in the fire, uh, forged in 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 injustice, like a sword is forged in the fire. And so, artists now that might feel like and, and that they're restrained or that you know there's i've met many artists who are you know going through this cancel culture stuff and i've interviewed some of them on my podcast this difficult period now i think will make for greater art later and when there's a great author who can go into the psychological drama of of this sort of social because another point is i don't think that what we're going through now and and this kind of getting kicked out or expelled from social groups for having the wrong opinions is is unique to this time. I think it's a very ancient uh, phenomenon. You know, yes. uh, Galileo, a person more of a so- so- Socrates. You can go back to uh, de Tocqueville writes about it in Democracy in America. You know, the Puritans. There's a there's a lot of historical context that, that, that having the right having the wrong ideas will get you ostracized from social groups and professional groups, and uh, so it's it's not a new thing. So I think in this current period, if there's a great artists will emerge who can articulate what's going on, and and those will be pieces of art that will resonate as long as humanity continues which isn't guaranteed by the way i just did a <laughs> podcast on artificial intelligence with neil ferguson and getting into this ai stuff so a lot of these people think it's the end of humanity i don't know where you stand on that will but that's uh maybe that's another topic <laughs> an interesting aside i actually looked at an interesting chart only last night on twitter that looked at the relationship between the countries that people lived in and how trustworthy they were of AI. And it basically found that people in more developed countries were far less trusting of AI than countries in the uh, in the less developed world. So basically 80% of Chinese people are embracing AI and about 30 to 40% of Americans. I'm not quite sure where to go with that, but I, I, I found it was, I think the views of, of on that topic would differ based on culture. That is interesting. I don't know how much you can trust a poll coming out of China. But, no, uh, I don't think the poll was coming out of, of China, but the top of the poll, uh, the most trusting of AI of any country were the Chinese and towards the bottom were the British, the Australians, the Americans, the Western countries. It was a, it was a very stark divide. Well, that's quite encouraging that, uh, that the, the, the Western, you know, are prepared to be sort of cynical and, and, and critical of, of this new technology as someone who lives in the West. Yes, yes, that's right. That is about the extent of my AI knowledge. So I will, uh, I will not to continue to bullshit any further. But I do want to cover off one more element of the arts, which I think is probably the most pronounced example of the harms that come with the rise of cultural Marxism, and that is comedy. You've spoken to several comedians. You've spoken to Andrew Doyle. We've both spoken to Constantin Kisson. They would all agree that the comedy industry has changed dramatically and in a very short space of time. Those conversations, why do you think that change has emerged and potentially why has it emerged even more dramatically in that field of the arts compared to, to say, potentially music? Well, I'm not a comedian and, and I know a few comedians, but I don't know that industry particularly well. And I say that as just as a, as a caveat before I say this, but I'm not fully convinced that the comedy world is suffering quite... I, I, I don't think it's, it's it's very easy to do a sort of like low definition criticism because okay so with comedy unlike music music you can make music you don't have to go into the realm of non-fiction and and ideas you can speak poetically about phenomenon be they personal phenomenon or you know societal phenomenon whatever with comedy it strikes me that you know to make a joke 
whether it's between two people or, or whether it's between, a, you know, it's, it's in a theatre or on a Netflix special. To make the joke, you have to agree on what the truth is. So comedians can't afford to get ideological unless their audience is ideological. Otherwise, they won't have an audience. They're, they, you know, they're relating, they're, they're exposing the truths and they have to ca carry their audience with them on that journey. Now, Constantine and Andrew, I have sp heard them both speak about comedy in the UK. And it's certainly true that, and this is true in the music industry as well, is that there's a lot, there's, there are many gatekeepers in these industries. Mm. So it's people who run the, the, the comedy clubs. It's people who run the music. It's the radio stations as well, the venues. And if they're ide ideologically captured and they start cancelling or not booking art uh, comedians because they've got the wrong opinions that that's where you have a problem and there's plenty of examples of this the famous example is dave chappelle in america had a a, a, a show booked at first avenue in minneapolis which is uh, listeners will remember the video purple rain by prince that it was the, that venue that that video was filmed at and he had a show their book last year and then after some trans joke they cancelled the show there are other, uh, uh, Lebovitz, uh, I've forgotten his name. There's other examples in, in the UK of similar things going on. But at the same time, simultaneously, Dave Chappelle, if we can continue that example, has probably the most successful comedy specials on Netflix, if not the most, then certainly up there, and a huge audience and can tour arenas around the world. And so, yes, cancel culture is, exists, uh, but for someone like Dave Chappelle, he's at such a level that he can he's still got an audience. I think yeah. it's more worrying for the young and up-and-coming artists who say the wrong thing and then get ostracized uh, for it. And there's plenty of examples of that. Only, earlier this year, there's a young com comic in the UK called Alfie Brown, and someone dug up some old stuff which he he was criticizing racism but then it was it was used against him as an example of him being racist which it wasn't mm. at all and and I think a venue in Brighton canceled a show and various people in in the industry have canceled shows so really it's it damages the it damages the up and coming artists more than it does the big ones but at the same time just to counter that opposition is if those artists can move to other medium now we have youtube social media you you redirect your career in in that in that way and 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 you find a new medium for it so 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 it's double edged that, that, that it's not like a clear like you're completely your career's done and maybe this is a misconception about what cancel culture is people means it's you're like over well what it actually means is it doesn't have to mean your entire career's over it means that your you know certain things are not open to you because you have the wrong opinions which is without even them being offended offensive opinions po perfectly legally held opinions mm. um so so for comedy uh, another ob observation i have is that some comedians are really huge and the, uh, there are woke comedians who are huge because there's there's a lot of woke people uh, and mm. so they don't need to play to the the whole world they just they, they, they find that audience likewise there's a lot of anti-woke comedians who are huge one of my favorites at the moment is a guy called Ryan Long, a very, very funny American guy. But he has a huge audience as well. And and and, and Shane Gillis is a, actually, he's probably my favorite at the moment. Um, you know, you find your audience and there's, there's also, wherever they find them, they find them. So yeah, there's a bit of a blabbering answer for you. No, it makes sense. As long as you can find an alternative channel to reach that audience that bypasses those gatekeepers that you mentioned, 
you have the ability to be able to, to, to reach people. Before we get on to a few of those taboo topics that you are now digging into in martial matters, uh, I would be remiss not to mention that you are one of just many brilliant contributors to The Spectator UK. Some of my other favourites, Douglas Murray, Neil Ferguson, who you've just spoken to, Brendan O'Neill, former editor, Boris Johnson. Uh, a reminder, if you subscribe to The Spectator Australia, you get all the wonderful content from the UK edition, along with the very best in Australian political and social commentary, a digital subscription, $16.99 a month, one month free when you sign up. Go to spectator.com.au forward slash join. Okay. He's got the to, ad in. Uh, He's done it. My editor will be happy. I, uh, I want to get to uh, <laughs> <laughs> I want to get to China because I know that you are a vocal supporter of the Hong Kong pro-democracy movement. You've established a not-profit, non-profit called the Hong Kong Link Up, which aims to link up British residents with Hong Kongers arriving in the UK. How would you assess the response of the West to growing Chinese authoritarianism? Bloody hell, that's a massive question. <laughs> um, I'm conscious it's early in your morning as well, so uh, I hope you've had your coffee. Well, it's a very difficult thing for the West to respond to. And if I speak for both Britain and America, they've done some things right and they've done some things wrong. So in Britain, they, they announced that the BNO scheme, which is Hong Kongers born before 1997 have a BNO passport and so they were given the right to live and work in the UK for five years and at that point they could they will be able to apply for a permanent residency a permanent citizenship so far at least 100,000 Hong Kongers have come since January 2021 and I think there'll probably be a few hundred thousand more although possibly legally there could be millions more I don't think there will be but that's a that's a that's a good response to the Hong Kong issue because a more heightened response would be you know you can't you can't start war with china like you can't start a hot war with china they'll win <laughs> so mm. you know from a geopolitical stance it's not a bad response having said that there's minor your listeners should follow what's happening to um, jimmy Lai, who's the founder of Apple Daily, which is one of the biggest pro-democracy news media outlets in Hong Kong, and he's under arrest. His freedom's severely curtailed. I think he's had almost everything confiscated, and he actually has a British citizenship as well. And the and the British government have done nothing about that. To America, one one thing that's worth complimenting about what Biden's done. I don't have many compliments for Biden, if I'm <laughs> if I'm honest with you, but. They have, I've forgotten the name of the um, policy, but in essence, th anything that's linked to the, the Xinjiang region of China, where the Uyghurs have been in, put into labor camps, uh, stories of their organs being harvested, and I would argue a genocide mm. has happened, as, as would the Uyghur tribunal that occurred, in, which took place in Britain two years ago. There is a Uyghur genocide, and, and, and trying to stop uh, manufacturing that uh, is done by the, the Uyghurs and supporting that the whole infrastructure of that heinous crime against humanity. Anything to stop that is a good thing. But as as I, I also say, I, I, well, you can't really start a war with China because then I really do think that's the end mm. of us all. So it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a tricky one. I, I'm not sure what I would do if I was a foreign secretary on, uh, on, on, on the issue. But... Um, well, you're you're so, playing an important you're you're playing an important role in your own way in accelerating the integration of Hong Kongers into the UK. Now, yeah, back to well, back to a personal just to colour that in, just to be more mm. specific. So, I started the Hong Kong link up thing because when the government 
in my, my government announced the BNO scheme, as I already described, they didn't say anything about integration or assimilation. And at the time, that, that could have been hundreds of thousands, as it turned out, it was hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of new people coming to our country. And no one talking about assimilation and integration. That's a serious that's that causes for serious social upheaval. It's a serious issue, and so no one was doing anything. So I started it. I was meeting Hong Kongers and and, and hosting them, and um, as they had already arrived, some of the early exiles and refugees. But now, what our organisation Hong Kong Link Up does is we we we're no longer doing this buddying scheme. It's more about we host seminars to help Hong Kongers integrate. It's a very small operation, but there's a few there's a few like like this going on in the UK and and. Um, it's a nice it, it it's a nice sort of bridge between Hong Kong and community British a uh, British community but but it's not it's not anything it's not as you know it's a very small local community level thing it's not you know your earlier question about the, the you know geopolitics of it all it's I, I don't know how to un, 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 unpack uh, you know un, I haven't quite worked out the answer to that question well it's interesting you or you you mentioned that I think this has been a problem in the UK over decades, a failure to sufficiently integrate and different cultural groups together. I've heard this sort of argument put forward by by someone like a Douglas Murray, and he says, for that reason, multiculturalism has failed in the UK. Yeah. Do you agree with him? Yeah. Well, look, I'll add to that. I read this morning that we project last year we had five in Britain, we had 500,000 net plus migrants coming to the UK. By the way, for listeners, before Brexit, the peak was 330,000 yearly net migrants. And now we're projected to have a million net migrants for 2023 coming in. So it's, it's a huge, it's an absolutely massive thing, the migrants um, coming in. And, and the multicultural issue is that I, I agree with Douglas on, on that um, specific issue. And, and so I, I personally think that you, you you take each migrant group as different groups and 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 think about how they can integrate now one of the the one of the positives about hong kongers and why it's a much easier group for, to integrate is that hong kongers as hong kongers the hong konger identity almost is to wearing two hats on the one hand they have uh, a, a chinese heritage on the other hand, they have a British heritage. It's a country that, that they proudly are, well, again, technically they've never had democracy in Hong Kong, but they you know, believe in democracy deeply. They believe in the rule of law, a common law, and, um, they, and, and they believe in responsibility. And uh, also, notably, about half of one poll I, uh, one, um, poll I saw of the Hong Kongers who have come over are Christians. Now, there's not, as a percentage of Hong Kong, the Christians aren't a, a huge group, but them being the, the, that most of them that have come here or half of them have come here are Christians. It's much easier to integrate if your foundational beliefs are the same as the local mm. population. It becomes much harder when you had, if, 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 it, if they were all um, Taoist, it would be a harder integration process. Likewise, there are other religions. It's much harder to integrate into a Christian society. So uh, that, that's it's a, it's a serious issue, and and, and that integration and, and failure of integration is less. I mean, Douglas has written about it extensively. Just read his book, The Strange Death of Europe. It's it's a um, it's a serious problem, and and I don't think it's one that's going away. It's the same challenge in Australia. I think the the numbers this year are four hundred thousand net new migrants coming in in twenty twenty three, and we also have a chronic housing shortage now. Unfortunately. Yeah. If you put forward these types of comments 
too many people will just throw out carelessly terms like xenophobic or or racist when it's very much a pragmatic conversation around how do we live in harmony together and then also literally how many people can we afford a quality of life that we think you know a country like the UK or Australia should should be providing it's and nothing it goes, to do with racism or xenophobia right. it, it, it's it's nothing to do with their race it would be it's the same if they were if they were white ethnically the same it wouldn't make a difference it's their culture it's their beliefs that's the thing that's the really big the big issue that 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 trying to get cohesion as a society you need the majority of people to have vague similar view of the world that's also why america even though it's a well, it's a, obvious multi-ethnic but the big division isn't on necessarily on ethnic ground it's on the what the view, view of the world they're they're kind of the progressive versus conservative the woke versus the anti-woke thing is because they have a completely different concept of their history and their future it's and it, whether they they it's you know regardless of their ethnicity or, or, or race so i it's um it's yeah i'll get so frustrated when i hear, when i hear that and another thing just on the housing crisis that's an excellent point will and we we've got a dire housing crisis uh, over here it's and and the knock on effects are insane we're going into we're going to population decline it's uh, because people aren't starting families because they can't afford to get on the bloody ha- uh, uh, property ladder you know they can't start their lives because it costs a fucking fortune you can't got to have these conversations okay you're going to have a you're going to have 400,000 uh, net migrants are you to australia okay are you going to build some houses who's going to build the houses when are you going to build the houses how quickly are you going to build the houses what's going to happen who's going to who's that going to hurt who gets the houses first all of those questions, they're not being had because it's too politically dangerous to have those questions. Just shut up and have the bloody conversation. Otherwise, what hell awaits us all? Well, potentially the most shameful example of that is the grooming gang scandal in the UK. You've had this conversation on your podcast, and I actually like to bring it up on this podcast because not enough people in Australia know about this, despite some parallels that can be drawn with what's happening in remote indigenous communities in australia for people who don't know for over 40 years now tens of thousands of girls and young women have been abused raped some cases murdered all across britain by grooming gangs which largely not exclusively but largely are are manned by by people of a pakistani ethnic minority descent it's been largely ignored by authorities and the media, at least until very recently. Why? Well, there's there's a few reasons why, and 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 as you said, I did an episode with this uh, with a, a investigative journalist called Charlie Peters, and he also made a documentary called "Grooming Gangs: Britain's Shame." If any of your listeners want to deeper dive into that, um, but yeah, that there's a, there's few reasons that one of the shameful reasons is is political correctness, where Police were too scared, or, or uh, journalists were too scared, and even politicians too scared to bring up the issue because it might be deemed racist. And and there's a you know Sarah Champion was a politician in Jeremy Corbyn's Labour shadow government, and she lost her her, her job because she dared write an article about it for in the Sun. That's a, there's an example in 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 politics. There's various examples of police not wanting to cover the story, uh, not wanting to deal with the issues or re- report the race of uh, some of the perp- perpetrators um, because they didn't want to be deemed 
racist, and 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 this has happened in in the in the shadow of the Stephen Lawrence death, and 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 so there's a a lot of that stuff has stopped people dealing with the real thing, and and what's what's quite shocking about it, and and this I've embarrassed myself here, but there's some of these girls they've been mur- brutally murdered. One girl was stabbed multiple times to death. One girl was lit alight. These these girls should be household names. I can't even remember them now off the top of my head. And and this is happening, and and people don't talk about it because uh, it's it's they're just too scared. You, you talking about race in any way is is just deemed too scary, and uh, or you know people are too too nervous about it. And you know it's not to say that all Pakistanis think this no I, I some of the leading voices against the grooming gangs fiasco have been of pakistani origin and, and heritage it's not it's not you can you can talk about a problem without lumping everyone into the issue and if you don't uh deal uh, deal with it you end up giving it to uh the hard right and people with more nefarious ambitions and uh who who can who can actually use it for uh, their racist missions? So it's a it's a the whole thing's very upsetting. Well, Winston, I loved listening to Mumford and Sons. I enjoy your podcast even more. Uh, for listeners, there's a link to Marshall Matters in the show notes. If you're like me and love to binge new shows, I strongly suggest starting with Winston's conversations with Peter Bukosian, Lawrence Fox, and Andrew Doyle, along with all the others that we've mentioned over the course of the conversation. Winston, keep doing what you're doing. I think you are one of the true men of principle in the modern age, and they are few and far between. Thank you very much for coming on Australiana. Well, thank you for, uh, for your great questions, and it's been a pleasure speaking with you, and uh, I look forward to uh, listening to your podcast as well. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Australiana. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and a review. And if you really enjoyed the show, head to spectator.com.au forward slash join. Sign up for a digital subscription today and you'll get your first month absolutely free.